Well, Chris, I think it's important for the public to understand what we mean when we talk about this, because you and I probably use these terms in our vocabulary more regularly. But when we talk about therapeutic nihilism, what we're basically doing is we're talking about a hands-off approach. Uh, and that's really what we did. We told people, listen, you've got COVID. We're going to take a hands-off approach. Either get well on your own or get sick enough to go in the hospital. And once you get to the hospital, by the way, a lot of the options that you might have had earlier are no longer there. And the everyday person would say, well, that doesn't make sense. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Welcome to this Peak Prosperity Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Chris Martinson, and I am very pleased to bring you a special guest, Dr. Scott Jensen, former Minnesota State Senator for Carver County, a practicing doctor, and current gubernatorial candidate. Dr. Jensen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. Well, it's really great to have you here. So I, I just want to dive right in. You're a very busy man. You have a, a, a currently operating practice, and you are running for governor. Why is that? I'm glad that you asked why rather than are you sure you want to? Because people <laughs> have asked me, are you sure you want to run for governor? And I say that I never said I wanted to. I think for me, it's it's Esther 4, 14 in the Old Testament of the Bible, where the verse goes like this. Have you considered you're in the position you're in for such a time as this? My wife and I feel compelled to run. We find Minnesota as well as our nation on an unsustainable path. And we were troubled deeply as as are millions and millions of Americans. The COVID pandemic is a huge part of it, but there's more to it than just that. There's a, a national divide and we're seeing it in the medical profession. We're seeing it in our communities and our churches. We're seeing a, a bit of a cancel culture. We're more and more locked into social media, which means that big tech has a huge portion of control over our lives. I'm not much for politics, but I like solving problems. And basically, that's why my wife and I decided we've got, to, we've got to do this. People have been encouraging us. And it took us about six months of soul searching. But we finally said yes uh, earlier this year in March. And we said, we're all in and we are. I totally understand feeling called in, in times like this. Uh, myself and my team, we feel called as well. I want to wish you the best of luck in that run. I'm glad to hear you say that it was you and your wife making that decision, because obviously that's a, that's a life-changing decision for the both of you. And my question then is, you, you started by saying that you feel like Minnesota's on an unsustainable trajectory at this point in time. What, what's, what's the worst concern that you have about, what, what concerns you most about that trajectory? Well, Chris, as you well remember, 15, 16 months ago, uh, Minneapolis streets burned in the wake of the uh, George Floyd uh, death. And basically, we have seen a crisis in leadership amongst our metropolitan mayors as well as our governor. We had 72 hours pass where we had news journalists saying, where is our governor? We had the mayor of Minneapolis asking for the National Guard. And the governor's response was basically, well, you didn't ask in a correct fashion. What do you want me to do? Send a bunch of 19-year-old cooks out there without a mission. Public safety is a huge issue. And I think that the catalyst was the George Floyd death. But the fact of the matter is, we're seeing it on other levels as well. Even 
even today as Christopher Columbus Day, many months ago, we had a group of people who independently decided that they could tear down a statue that had stood for decades at the capital of Minnesota because they didn't like the statue of Christopher Columbus. So this time-honored and revered statue was torn down and there was no restitution made and the full force of the law did not come down upon these, if you will, lawbreakers. So I think we're seeing public safety at a low level like we've never seen before. We feel like the integrity of our elections is legitimately a question that we can ask. School choice is critically important. So many of our schools are now being literally infiltrated by a, an insidious urge to indoctrinate our kids into critical race theory rather than provide them a foundational education that focuses on the three R's. I think that we're seeing science absolutely sacrificed at the altar of political science. In Minnesota, we're spending at a rate we've never spent before. Our Second Amendment rights are being called into question, and we need to redouble our efforts to protect them and honor them. Those are the kinds of things that are going on in Minnesota that I just find put us on an unsustainable path. Now, this this idea of the cancel culture and, and people being split asunder, and by the way, this has happened to friends of mine, family members. I understand, you know, this is a very... Uh, epidemic sort of a, a separating that, that's been happening. Do you feel, is this just sort of an accident of COVID or is this more intentional? What's the cause of this, do you think? One has to wonder, partly because of the speed with which this has all happened and the way we move from one crisis in the pandemic to another, we could talk about the various issues that arose, but the bottom line is, if someone had asked a typical American citizen two years ago, did they think it was possible that we could be in a situation that we're in today? I'm going to guess 99% of folks would have said no. But today, the notion of living in the midst of a Twilight Zone episode or in the midst of a Hunger Games episode is very real. So I think that that along with the growing emergence of big technology, this technological elite, the fact that such a small number of humans can control what we see, what we think, what we talk about, it's alarming. And I think it does create the seeds of ideas and thoughts that would have been foreign to Americans just two years ago. Well, there's certainly an aspect of that for myself as a scientist. I've been deeply offended by what happened to my precious science. And I don't know if it's, got, if, if it's something that happened to it or just got exposed. But we've seen a complete loss of the ability to have scientific conversation. I am un, not allowed to actually discuss data, which is, which is my bread and butter. I love, I love talking about data. And I've run lots of science studies, so I understand. You can do them well. You can do them poorly. You can scrub your data a little bit or not. I mean, I understand the wrinkles of it. And so we should be having a full-throated conversation about this and yet we're not allowed to. But where it became really across the Rubicon for me is I'm, I know well people like Pierre Corey, Dr. Peter McCullough, Drs. Fareed, Tyson, yourself. These are people who discovered that there are ways to provide effective early treatments for patients, and they did so very successfully. They have observational data that's really strong. 
And that was all put aside and rendered illegitimate by the system. I don't have a framework for understanding that in my life. It's data, it's science, it works, and it saves lives. Do you have any way of helping me understand what's happening here? Well, one of the things I noticed is that, first off, in the discussions, we don't discuss as much as we go straight from disagreement to contempt. So we hold others in contempt. We ridicule whatever it is they're putting forth as data or perspective. The way I originally got into this, if you a hot seat with COVID-19, had to do with context. Because that's something that I've always found helpful for my patients as well as myself, and even raising children and being a professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School for years. If someone says, well, my stars, the sky is falling. Did you realize this? I said, yeah, but did you know that we had 80,000 people die of influenza in 2018? Because that mitigates potentially the impact of what we're dealing with now. People say, well, do you know that six people died yesterday of COVID-19? And I might say, well, that's in Minnesota. And do you realize that every day, 130 Minnesotans die? Do you realize that in the United States, every day, almost 10,000 people die? When you start to put things in perspective, it takes the fear factor away, and it helps people think of things within a, a bigger perspective. If you don't want people thinking in a bigger perspective, then you would want them to be paralyzed by fear. And again, that gets back to your question. Did this happen for a reason? What was going on? So if we see our ability to get context shrunk, if we hear people saying, you can't use that data because that data didn't come from one of our approved sources. Now you're talking about 1984 written by George Orwell. Now you're talking about having to be re-educated. So I have never spent so much time in my life, Chris, going on internet and finding out what the media bias was for the source I was going to quote. I had never done that. I always thought, well, I'll put the data out there and let people look at it within the context of what it is. But now I, I mean, my kids, my students, my residents, uh, my patients, uh, my colleagues in medicine said, well, how, do you, how dare you quote this article because it came from this source? So then we see a magazine or journal like Lancet publish a couple articles and then retract them. Or we see the New England Journal, you know, a highly regarded medical journal, having to do similar things. And we see that no one is untouched by this. So now I have a much better handle on, is this left-leaning, right-leaning, centrist, hard right, hard left? And I, I think it's unfortunate because good data, good reports come from places you might least expect it. Look at Iceland. There's an awful lot of doctors and scientists and analysts looking at the data we get from Iceland of all places because they're doing a good job. Frankly, I look at the United Kingdom, Israel, and Iceland a lot because I really don't feel as comfortable trusting what's come out of the CDC in the United States. And that's unfortunate. And I share that because every time I get a piece of data from the CDC, I have to dig into it and look at it carefully. And I often find warts on that data without a lot of scratching. Uh, it's very politically biased. And so we have we've had politicized medicine has sort of been my impression. 
How big is your practice? How long have you been practicing? Well, thanks for asking that because uh, it has been a blessing. Catalyst Medical Clinic was born in 2001. And I thought I left a larger clinic and I wanted to practice medicine upfront and personal. I like having my patients be their own best champion. I always tell my patient, listen, if there's a boxer in this room, um, I'm not it. You're the one who has to go out in the middle of the ring and daily, you know, come to blows with the stresses and all that. I'm the trainer. Uh, if you get nicked up or dinged up, I'm, in the, I'm the guy in the corner that's going to advocate for you. But uh, you're the one who, who has to go through the daily ordeals of life. Having said that, in 2001, we started Catalyst. And I thought, well, if we got 1,000 patients, that would be a joy for me. Never could I have dreamt that uh, we would go over 10,000 patients. And wow. We'd have six doctors and two clinics and just have literally the most satisfying medical practice I could ever imagine. I know many doctors might disagree with me, but I would say without any fear, I have the best patients in the world. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and you started that to treat, of course, and I, I love that idea of being the trainer, not the boxer in that story. Uh, it sounds exactly right to me from a, from a dynamic uh, patient-doctor dynamic. So did you treat COVID patients? Yes. We did not become, if you will, a COVID center. Mm -hmm. So there were many things that we were able to work with other healthcare providers. For instance, in our clinic, we have a pharmacy in the same building that does a wonderful job providing vaccines. So when the vaccines came out, they were the ones who did the COVID vaccines. In terms of the testing, we found the early testing so unreliable, it was frustrating for us. And we also didn't have the kind of, if you will, physical setup that would allow us to do the kind of triage that some of the urgent care centers, same-day surgery centers, ASCs, and hospitals in the nearby area could do. So we did not do the testing. So many of our services were provided after the quarantine or isolation was over or through telemedicine uh, in the uh, acute phase of the disease. And through this process, uh, what we're coming up on almost two years eventually here soon. Uh, so in that process, you're treating patients. Did it ever start to feel like it had become politicized for you? And if so, when? Almost from the get-go. It was unfortunate. I, I mean, I think the the politicization actually, you could say, you could say it started almost with the very first step, which was social distancing. We were told six feet. But if you actually go back and look at the data, typically the European one meter with 39 inches had been the standard. We even had reports that it should be six feet or 12 feet or 39 feet or something if someone was running and breathing hard. You could go to masks, which we were told not to wear for several months until evidently someone got religion. And then masks were the do-all end-all. You could say the modeling, but the modeling presumptions weren't shown to us. And we were told simply to accept it because we probably wouldn't be able to understand it. You could talk about the way we were given a variety of mitigating policies lockdowns, lock-ins, essential businesses, non-essential businesses, safe businesses, non-safe businesses. You can't go to church, but you can go to the largest candy store in the state. You can't go to the local hardware store and buy a hammer, but you can get one with 20 other people in the tool section of Home Depot. It just didn't add up. I think those were the things that happened early on. So I think 
the trust fractured so early on. And it was almost like our public health officials were tone deaf to what was going on because we could see it happening. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to understand that this would be a terrible thing because if this happened, you would not be able to regain that trust quickly. And in the midst of a public health crisis, what's more important than civic and population-based trust? There's nothing more important than that. In fact, that's the most valuable asset any public health agency could have. And my reading of that is that at various state levels, quite a few of them, but certainly at the federal level, a lot of trust got destroyed. And I don't know how long it's going to take to build it back because we had missteps like the mask thing you just mentioned, but just trying to track the vaccine narrative. Do we need 70%, 70, 75, 70, 70, 80, 85, 90, 98, the president just said, you know, to get to herd immunity when the truth is, if you study it, we may never get there with a leaky, non-sterilizing vaccine. It's who knows, but we should have a debate about that and we should talk about that and have that in the context, the word you used before of what are we willing to give up in the pursuit of this aim? But the aims keep moving, the goalposts keep moving, and every time that happens, I feel like my trust gets lost. What 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 well, remains of it? And what you said earlier, Chris, too, you, you mentioned sort of what's the root idea or notion behind science. And really, science is three things. I always tell people, let's just think of Isaac Newton. So he's sitting under the apple tree, and an apple falls down next to him, almost hits him in the nose. And he keeps watching, he observes, and he notices that 10 apples fall down and they all fell down. First he observed it, then he measured it, 10 out of 10 apples dropped. Then he hypothesized, there must be something that causes the apple to fall down and not fall up. So he creates an experiment to confirm this. Then he tries to get other people to do the same thing and replicate the way he's thinking. In that process, we either establish or don't establish a scientific fact. We didn't do that with COVID. We didn't learn from when something failed. Take Governor Cuomo in New York. We saw early on that the ventilators weren't working, but that did not stop a lot of states from just going in hyper-frenzied mode and order all kinds of ventilators that are still unwrapped on pallets. We saw New York inadvertently pipeline active COVID disease into long-term care facilities. And we saw the nursing home population get ravaged by this virus. But in Minnesota, we didn't learn from that. The response was to continue to pipeline disease into the nursing homes. But for good measure, let's go out and buy a $7 million building in case we have to store cadavers. And it never saw a cadaver. It just seemed like we were almost playing a game of whack-a-mole. And every time we hit one, someone, some other mole would raise his head. Well, if we look at that, we can say, well, you know, it's a crisis. Maybe these things happen. But I can tell you about countries, whole countries with many millions of people in them that didn't suffer those problems. Taiwan had a very rational response all the way through. Sweden seemed to do pretty well. Norway's got a pretty rational response. Indonesia's doing pretty well. So there are countries that that got it, right? And they managed to have a fairly effective public health response. Ours clearly was defective in this country. A uh, flat learning curve on it as well. How would you go about addressing that as governor? 
Well, I think one of the critical errors that uh, Governor Walls made in Minnesota was, and I think a lot of politicians do this, he fell prey to the almost intoxicating daily experience that an elected official frequently has, whereby people clamor for your attention. They want your time. They want to say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. It's almost as if by getting elected, some marvelous epiphany has occurred whereby you got smarter. And I think, frankly, a lot of times you just get dumber. And I think that when that happens, I think what you need to do is you need to have almost this second tier of people that you confer with that hold no obligation to you, that are not employed by you, that don't really care if you agree or not. This self-absorption that politicians experience is dangerous. It's so easy to get tied into some sort of a echo chamber group think. I know for a fact that there were people in Minnesota to say, Governor Walls, you are the decision maker. You are the governor. But we would be glad to meet with you periodically and have you bounce ideas off of us so that we can maybe point out things that you might not have thought. This was a huge issue because, quite frankly, we kept making the same mistakes over and over again. We shouldn't have. That's a huge error for a politician to make. Well, and I've been astonished that they continue to make them over and over again. And I do think it's time for, clearly, it's time for a change of leadership. There's some very big predicaments on our national horizon right now. And and I know that uh, the fiscal situation just drives me batty. I've been following it for a long time. And and the deficits that scared me, you know, five years ago have just been blown out of the water today. And the debts that we're carrying both at the national and state levels are extraordinary, which is to say nothing of the unfunded pension liabilities that are just lurking there, nobody really looking at them. How, how, do, we, how do we begin to get our arms around uh, a national failure to save and, and a proclivity to overspending? This is going to be a tough one because when the people begin to think that it's okay to print money in the basement of the Capitol in an unlimited fashion and that they're getting Santa Claus gifts every month, It's tough to stop that. I think we've probably all read that sort of timeline where the death of a democracy might be two or 300 years, depending upon when the masses realize that they can receive, demand gifts from the government that they didn't earn and that aren't being paid for. And somehow thinking that it's okay. The notion of a 30 trillion dollar national debt should frighten all of us, especially when we realize that that is substantially larger than our GDP. Our federal government does not have an obligation to balance budget. It shouldn't take too much effort to convince the the people that this is not a good place to be at. But right now, it's a little bit like Christmas every month. And in Minnesota, we saw our spending go up almost 75% in 11 years, while the average wage growth went up only 25%. Somehow, we have got to appeal to our citizenry's common sense, and it's going to take a lot of hard work. So this begins with a a bit of education, you might say. Education is pivotal, and that's one of the things I've learned on the campaign trail, Chris. I've been so impressed with how engaged and energized 
Minnesotans are across the state. Now, I'm going to guess this is across the nation and across the globe, but I'm campaigning, if you will, only in Minnesota. So that's where I see it. But people have been absolutely articulate, uh, thoughtful, skeptical. I mean, quite honestly, I spent a term in the Senate and I was dramatically disappointed in some of the legislative behaviors. But my faith in Minnesota has been restored because I've gone north, south, east, and west and had a chance to meet Minnesotans and realize that they're there and they're not, they're not totally bamboozled. They get it. That is good to hear. And I, I truly believe that it's time for a new narrative. The narrative that is currently running in the country right now, I find to be nihilistic, um, particularly around COVID. It was, it was true medical nihilism. There's no treatments. There are no treatments. Just go home. If your lips turn blue, come on back. We'll put you on a ventilator. I found that horrifying because we learned in March of 2020 through a Spanish study that vitamin D was really important. And if you had adequate levels, it would significantly reduce the downstream effects of, of COVID, the disease. Uh, we knew that. Nobody said anything about that at the national levels or even at, at any state public health level that I'm aware of. They should have been out there every day just talking vitamin D, right? And it has a strong racial component because people who have darker skin tend to get make less natural vitamin D from the sun. So you would think there's all sorts of reasons to promote it. And it was just chirping crickets. That speaks to me to a profound need for a change in the narrative. Something is broken. That sounds pretty easily addressable to me. I couldn't agree with you more, Chris. And I think that it's a little cynical, but I'll say it. So often we have to follow the money. Got to follow the dollars. And if you saw two of the big players that were benefiting from what was going on, one would have to be big pharma, but another one would have to be big government. Big government was expanding at a rate like we'd never seen before because it had the ability to use emergency executive powers and do end runs around the normal legislative branches. So here we sit. We've got an example that many of us still remember that should be leading the way for us. And that example would have been the 1976 Legionnaires outbreak of pneumonia. After the convention was over in Philadelphia, people went home and they started getting sick. Respiratory disease, diagnosed with pneumonia, went to the hospital. We gave them the best intravenous antibiotics we had and they continued to die. What did we do? Did we throw up our hands and say, oh, where's Dr. Fauci? Of course not. What we did was we kept trying. We talked with our patients and some doctors said, you know, this bug, this bacteria, this infection, whatever it is, isn't behaving according to Hoyle. So we're going to go back and try an old-fashioned antibody. It was a macrolide. It was erythromycin. And lo and behold, people stopped dying. Fast forward to 2020. We realized that many of the people that were getting the sickest were also having bronchospastic disease. Why would we hesitate to use steroids? When any person that has asthma or ARDS would be treated with steroids. We knew that that very benign combination of vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and the flavonoid quercetin would literally 
present virtually no harm, perhaps other than a little diarrhea, and might provide tremendous benefit. I never saw Dr. Fauci get on TV and say, listen, vitamin C, D, zinc, quercetin, get off the couch, walk every day for 20 minutes, lose five pounds, and you will be amazed at how you strengthen your immune system. I, as a faith-based person, would have said, spend five minutes a day reflecting, meditating, counting your blessings, because I honestly do believe there's physiologic science that says we will fight off disease better if we have some semblance of peace in our minds and we're not a bundle of neurotic, tight, entangled nerves. Exactly. And Fauci did say all of that. In 2019, I found an interview with him where he said exactly those things. Somebody said, how can I improve my immune system? He said, exercise, get good rest, get good sleep, take care of stress, lose a few pounds. He had all that information. It wasn't like something happened. And then 2020 comes and it's, and again, this is where the nihilism comes. I can't think of any reason he would have behaved the way he did, except that he didn't actually have anywhere on his priority list people being healthy. That's how I interpret it now. And I don't know what to do with that because it's a very dark thought to have, but I can't interpret his actions any other way. If I was a prosecutor, I know the case I'd lay out. Well, Chris, I think it's important for the public to understand what we mean when we talk about this, because you and I probably use these terms in our vocabulary more regularly. But when we talk about therapeutic nihilism, what we're basically doing is we're talking about a hands-off approach. Uh, and that's really what we did. We told people, listen, you've got COVID. We're going to take a hands-off approach. Either get well on your own or get sick enough to go in the hospital. And once you get to the hospital, by the way, a lot of the options that you might have had earlier are no longer there. And the everyday person would say, well, that doesn't make sense. So the public was asking that question. They were begging for information. And yet they weren't being given it. And so then we saw other possible therapeutic options being raised. And I think our whole country got into this huge bickering episode. We had medicines being discussed on the, in the public square by people who knew very little about them. But the appetite for the discussion was, on one hand, driven by people wanting to know and potentially avail themselves of it. And on the other, it seemed by a group of people that wanted to denigrate it and to continue this nihilism so that this binary choice, get better or don't, would be the order of the day. And if you landed in the hospital, you would basically be at a very high risk of significant illness. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say, to shift it a little bit, I'm actually really thankful for all that I've learned through all of this, and I feel like I have much better agency in my own health at this point in time. I'd kind of fallen for whatever that little story was that vitamins are an expensive way to urinate. You know, that's what they would tell you, you know. And it's not true. If you have adequate levels of vitamin D above 50 nanograms per ml, all sorts of things seem to do well. And melatonin has these remarkable uh, things besides making you drowsy at night that help regulate your overall hormonal balance and having adequate levels of vitamin D and zinc and selenium if you're deficient, etc. Now that I'm armed with that and I have the data, I actually feel like I'm going to be a lot healthier going forward. And that I, I, I have to thank, you know, it, and I learned that all from the people at the edge of the Internet doing all these crazy, wonderful studies and actually doing the data. None of that came from the center authorities, not one bit of that. That all came from doctors like yourself who had really good powers of observation 
and some of whom put that to test, either observationally, retrospectively, or even in the gold standard RCTs. Wonderful. I'm glad to have that data now. It's interesting. If we look at this, we could ask ourselves, how did this happen? And I think that it's interesting that it was about 100 years ago that insulin was discovered. And it was discovered by Canadian scientists who basically donated the patent to the good of humanity for a dollar. So what happened over the next 50 years? We saw, if you will, an infatuation with the tools that medicine had. We went from the horse and buggy days of medicine to having good medications, good antibiotics, much greater surgical successes. Christian Bernard was able to transplant a heart. Medicaid and Medicare were put into place in 1965. So that by 1970, from 20 to 70, 50 years, the world of medicine was amazing. There was nothing we couldn't do. So what happened from 1970 to 2020? The world of pharmaceuticals. The world of pharmaceuticals drove our medical science, our medical profession. What were they interested in? Scientific advances, patents, corporate earnings, dollars, revenues, of course. Well, then what would have to be minimized if you're driving for dollars? Inexpensive treatments. For heaven's sakes, don't let the people think that they could do common sense, inexpensive things like maintain ideal body weight or eat more green vegetables. We told the public, you know what? Eating fish twice a week is a good thing, but why don't you just take this fish oil capsule that we'll sell you for 10 bucks a capsule? We were given shortcuts, pills, and told, don't worry about vitamin D and vitamin C. All you'll do is pee it out anyway. And losing weight, shoot a mile. It's okay. We absolutely swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. And that's why everything we look at today in the world of medicine has to be looked at through the, the lens of what is Big Pharma doing here? And we know what Big Pharma has done in the COVID pandemic. People may not realize it. Pfizer this year will get more than $35 billion in net revenues from the COVID vaccine alone. Well, pharmaceutical companies used to really thrill to coming up with medicines like Viagra and Zoloft and CPAC. Now, with immunity and indemnity, with, with vaccines since 1986. If a pharmaceutical company can get a vaccine across the goal line, they've got big dollars up front, recurring income, no liability. That's a sweetheart deal. Well, it really is. So in, in, that, in that scheme of things, you know, as Charlie Munger, the right-hand man of Warren Buffett said, if you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. I think we have to have people understand the role of incentives in this story again. Too many people I know have fallen for the idea that, thank goodness that these big pharma companies rode in. And listen, I'm glad the pharma companies are there doing what they do, but they shouldn't be allowed to determine or drive policy or influence it to the degree they are. And I know people who are battling with the NIH at this point in time, which has said, we need RCTs, randomized control trials. That's the gold standard. Until we have those, we can't make a decision. Scott, that nobody that was not their policy, and it's still not written down that that's their policy because penicillin, that was approved without any RCTs because we could see it was working on the battlefields. You wouldn't take a thousand soldiers and say they're going to get a placebo. It works. 
observation works. It had worked for for decades and decades, and now it's MIA from our national health landscape, and and it feels like um, that's really marginalized the role of doctors. Do you feel that pressure to sort of conform and 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 you know follow a script, or maybe not you with your own practice, but I certainly I hear that from other doctors. I think you're absolutely right. I think we we are in the age of sound bites. The media drives everything, so. I have never seen a good double-blinded randomized control trial that says that milk is good for babies. Okay. So is milk not good for babies? Maybe it's because the nature of the study is a difficult one to do. If you're going to have a thousand babies take milk, are you literally going to take another thousand babies and deny them milk? So I think that we, when, when science is bastardized by the media, we're going to, it's a slippery slope. Randomized control trials, double-blinded, yeah, if you can do it, great. But you're not going to be able to do it with appendicitis. Are you going to have a 1,000 patients sit there with their bellies hot and not take them to surgery, and you'll take the other 1,000 to surgery? Of course not, because you know that if you did that, you'd cause a lot of morbidity and mortality. So retrospective studies are sometimes the best we can do. Sometimes prospective studies. Sometimes we can do two different groups. But the fact of the matter is, people want things served up simple and they don't wanna to have to dig deep. And so we saw good solid data from 2002 with SARS-CoV-1 to 2019. It wasn't as if we were all stupid during those days. For 17 years, we had good solid data being accumulated on questions like, what do you do with the respiratory virus? What do you do in regards to cotton masks, surgical masks, N95 masks? How do we stop respiratory viruses? Do lockdowns work? Should we keep kids out of school? How do you protect the nursing home population? We've been doing this and we had good solid data, but if it didn't conform to the conventional, conventional media-driven narrative, it was literally thrown out in a moment. And we were told that we gotta start from scratch. And so we started with crap for studies. And that crap for studies drove stupid policies. And we're going to have to dig our way out. So all of this speaks back to the, the need for um, a return to something. And I'd like to talk about democracy for a bit now in the time we have left. I have to confess, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a data guy and I love my data. And uh, I talked with a lot of people who are election integrity experts. I did a really nice interview with a Brad Friedman a while back. And he's a, he's a legit national expert on this. And I made the mistake of saying, you know, Brad, I, I feel like I, 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 I don't have as much faith as I should in our elections. And he said, whoa, 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 you should never have faith in an election. You should have verifiable results in an election because people are people. And he got me thinking that what we really, truly need are verifiable results, meaning if you need to, you can go back and say what happened. We don't seem to have that in, in a lot of places uh, because of the nature of our voting systems at this point in time with electronic tabulators and voting machines. It's, it's, it's a hot mess, and it really shouldn't be. Uh, how is the situation in your state, and, and does it need fixing? Well, I don't think there's any question that the last 20 years have been tough in America regarding our elections. I was reading an article just yesterday about the year 2000 when Al Gore was running against Bush and the hanging chads and the fact that Gore had 
lost on the recounts. He lost the original night votes in Florida. He lost in the recounts. He lost in the appeals court. He lost in the Supreme Court. And by the second week of December, we knew who our president was. And then you go fast forward and it seems like we hear things about ballot harvesting and illegal vouching and abuse of the absentee ballot system and mail-in ballots going out three ballots might be delivered to one home because it was an apartment that had different people living there over the prior 24 months. For me, I just say, I can't know what I don't know. I know that there's shenanigans. And I think it's important for all Americans, I don't think it's a partisan issue, that we understand just how critically important and sustaining elections with integrity are. I think we can all agree that Let's make it easy to vote, but hard to cheat. Let's make sure that every ballot that's counted is an eligible ballot. I don't understand why we're so hell-bent on making certain that we maximize the number of ballots in the box, when for me, what I would really want is every ballot to be eligible, and I want our voting population to be informed. That's partly why I'm so sharply critical of critical race theory because I think that that's an indoctrinational kind of education rather than a foundational education. And we want foundational education so that we don't have a nation of illiteracy. We have a nation where our citizens can read and write and do arithmetic. And in so doing, have a business, be a good citizenry, be an informed citizenry, and help, if you will, collectively, America make the best choices possible in our elections. So from my perspective, when we talk about election integrity, I don't think those people should be labeled as conspiracy theorists. I think we should recognize that if we look at 2020, we may well learn very important lessons that will make 2022 better, more trustworthy, and more believable by all. When we talk about canvassing a district, and if we find that a district has 200,000 eligible voters, and traditionally 160,000 have voted. But in a given year, 198,000 voted. We have to ask ourselves the question, what happened there? If we find that 282 dead people voted in Maricopa County, we have to ask, how could we do better? But I think we also have to ask, what was the voting record traditionally in terms of registering for the Republican or Democratic Party of those 282 dead people? Is there something to be learned there as well? These are the reasons why elections have to be studied. We know that we need election judges. We know that we want to do everything we can to make certain that all Americans feel that our elections have integrity. And I think that's where the beginning of the discussion is and the end. Let's seek trustworthy elections. I couldn't agree more with that. It's super important. And I just find it awkward that if I take $2 out of an ATM at a 7-Eleven to buy a slushie, that that's a fully verifiable audit trail. We can figure out what happened. We can figure out exactly what moment and that it was me or my card that was involved, right? I know coders who say they can fix, you know, code up a, a, a very trust, trustworthy system in a couple of weeks. So if we want to, as a people, we can have trustworthy, high-integrity elections. I think it starts with somebody who actually wants that, um, and that's where it all begins. 
So, Dr. Jensen, best of luck to you. I would like people to be able to find out how they could support you if they so wanted to or find out more about you and your campaign. Where would they go? Well, Chris, thank you for that question. That's kind. If the good Lord had told me seven months ago that in our first six months of launching, we would do what's never been done before in Minnesota for a non-incumbent Republican candidate to raise a million dollars, I would have raised an eyebrow and said, wow, that's a setting a high bar, but that's what happened. We have 75,000 people that have joined our email team. We've got 10,000 unique donors. We have half a million people that follow us on our social media platforms every day. We're thrilled at the engagement and the enthusiasm that people are showing for our campaign. And I think the reason, Chris, is because I'm an outsider. I will never be the darling choice of the political old guard. I'm not a career politician. I don't respond to the same levers. We're not taking any money from big tech or big pharma. We haven't had any fundraisers of lobbyists or PACs. Our website is drscottjensen.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. We have tried to be as transparent as possible. We're respectful of all people. We don't call people rocks and cows. Uh, We're resistant to a lot of the normal iconic behaviors that take place in an an election or a campaign process. Uh, we're, We're interested in speaking for all Minnesotans. We will trailblaze the issues. We'll take on awkward conversations that perhaps the best conventional political wisdom would say, avoid that, Scott, because if you have that conversation, all you're gonna do is get yourself in quicksand. I would rather get into quicksand and put my arm out and ask someone to throw me a rope. Because to me, that's what Americans want. They are sick and tired of the same old professional political class. They aren't cutting it. So that's why I'm running. I'm all in. And I would love it if people would check us out. Well, fantastic. That is a breath of fresh air. And that's certainly what I'm looking for in a candidate. I know other people are as well. So best of luck with that. And wow, those are amazing statistics that you've got so far. So, so that's a lot of support. Glad you're getting it, and I'm glad that you and your wife decided to go on this path together because it sounds like you might be successful. Thanks, Chris. I sure hope so.